This is The Shakeout. Welcome to the Breaking 2-02-57 episode. My name is Michael Doyle. I am the editor of Canadian Running Magazine. And with me today, we have our staff writer, Tim Huge. Tim, how are you doing? Great. How's it going, Michael? I'm doing well. I'm excited. I'm excited for this weekend. Uh, lots going on. We will talk about that in just one second. Uh, for our usual listeners who may be accustomed to a third voice, sadly, uh, Sinead Mulhern, our web editor, is not in the studio today. She is off chasing down other stories, so you're stuck with uh, with just me and Timmy. Um, we're going to have two two topics today. First, we're going to talk all about the Berlin Marathon, which is this weekend. We are recording midweek, a little early this week. I've lost track of time. What day is today? We're Tuesday. And the race, of course, is Sunday morning, very early. Uh, We've got some exciting news to share to Canadians who are looking to follow along, which we will talk about in the first segment. And of course, we're going to break down predominantly the the men's race, which is going to hopefully be a new world record. And we'll talk about who we think is going to win and whether the world record will fall in Berlin. And in our second segment, we chat with film director Martin Desmond Rowe, who uh, produced Breaking 2, which is a behind-the-scenes look at Nike's audacious and controversial project to run a sub-two-hour marathon. I, of course, was in Monza, Italy to watch the event with my own eyes, and Tim did a lot of coverage behind the scenes while I believe you were in Vancouver, if I'm not mistaken, at the time, Tim. Yeah, we were we were covering it globally at that point. That was intense. It was actually really beneficial because you were, the time zones, it kind of worked out really nicely. But uh, both Tim and I have got uh, uh, have have uh, followed that story in detail, so we look forward to chatting with Martin Desmond Rowe about putting together this pretty incredible documentary for National Geographic. All right, Berlin. We are going to get a clash of the titans this Sunday in Berlin. We're going to see Elliot Kipchoge, Wilson Kip- Kipsang, and Kenanisa Bekele go head to head to head for the second time. Actually, they've all raced each other quite a few times. Tim, what do you what do you expect to see on Sunday in Berlin? A world record uh, okay. to, I guess, get that out of the way early. Uh, that's really, I think, what all these guys are going for. They've all won big races. They've all run really fast times. It's uh, three of the five fastest guys ever. Um, so really anything, I think, short of a world record, especially after Kipchoge ran... Um, more than two minutes under the record le- eligible uh, world record, I think. Uh, and given how fast uh, the German capital course is, I think that's basically um, a shoe in. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that course because you've you've run Berlin before. Yeah, uh, you ran quite well. And tell us a little bit about what the course is like and why it's so fast. So I ran it uh, last year when Kipsang and Bekele had their. Um, they finished one, two last year, but Kaylee ran two Oh three, um, Oh three and finished. And he was, uh, looked a little, uh, disappointed because the clock was actually a few seconds fast. So mm. it looked like he was 
right on world record pace at the finish, but turns out um, the gun time was uh, was lagging a bit. Um, Conspiracy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but no, the course is uh, the course is amazingly fast. It's uh, gains maybe 120 feet throughout throughout the race, which is um, which is pancake flat as they come. But the only other marathon I've done is Chicago, uh, and Berlin is basically as flat as they come, and it's fast. It starts at 9 a.m., which I feel like is uh, maybe later than some of these uh, some of the world majors or big city marathons. Um, conditions are always really good. Um, the crowds are intense, and it's just it's the type of race where the entire city kind of embraces uh, the marathon. The whole course is packed, and they really have like these. Like certain sections of the race um, near the end, especially they they line up a at least last year they lined up a, a mondo track for about a hundred meters of it. So it, it really like switches up uh, at parts of the course, which is good mentally. Um, and they just have like some like interesting little like intricacies of the course, like they give out uh, hot and cold tea at the the aid stations aid stations, which um, for North Americans that might not be the best thing to take if you've never done that in a marathon. They have Red Bull and water. Uh, mm-hmm. mix at some point near the end of the race to prevent the, the bonking, uh, <laughs> which I again passed. Uh, you don't want to do that kind of stuff if you've never done it before in a marathon. Uh, but overall, I think the last six men's world records have been set in, uh, in Berlin. So it's obviously fast and, um, yeah, the women's world records haven't been set there just cause the current was, the current one is incredible. So we'll yeah. break down these, these three figures and running them, why they're so compelling just beyond being very fast um, because I actually, I, I believe that all three of these men are really interesting as personalities, as characters in the sport, as well as just being super fast athletes. Uh, the current world record is 20257. It's held by Dennis Cometo, uh, another Kenyan who uh, set the record in 2014 in Berlin. He is not racing uh, Berlin. He is racing Chicago uh, where he has had some success in the past. But the interesting thing is, Tim, is that Kometo is sort of seen almost as like a an anomaly or like a non-factor now. I think most of the hardcore running world sort of believes that these three guys in Berlin are the top three marathoners, perhaps of all time. Oh yeah, his he did uh, he ran two hundred two fifty seven in twenty fourteen now, um, and all of these guys have run quite well within the last calendar year. Now, kept saying has run. Uh, he went under 204 in Tokyo. Bekele uh, ran 203, obviously, last year in uh, in Berlin. And Kipchoge is just, he wins the Olympics and then he runs a crazy time, two hours flat, 25 seconds uh, at that breaking two Nike experiment that you uh, you were talking about briefly there earlier. I think Kipchoge is, for me, um, he's the, um, he's sort of like the, He's the monk-like figure of these three men. Uh, he trains, I mean, I think all three of them probably train, have a pretty Spartan, stripped-down approach to training, although apparently Bekele, uh has been using quite a bit of science. Uh, it's been pretty science-based training but uh, lately. But Kipchoge trains with the Global Sports, um, Global Sports Training Camp in Kenya, and it's, it's interesting because he... he he lives a very, very simple life for most of his training. I mean, he's cleaning latrines. He shares a bedroom, a very small little bedroom with one of his training partners. It's a pretty simple life and a pretty hardcore life. But he's also this very compelling character, I think, because he is uh, he's so even keel all the time. I mean, I spoke to him a little bit 
in Monza in Italy and he's just very, very like just calm always. I mean, this was after he nearly ran under two hours for the marathon, uh, the first person in history even to come close because uh, obviously the world record is a couple minutes fast, uh, slower than that. And he was very, very even, you know, very like he, he smiled a little bit and he was very positive, but he's very like a very even and controlled guy. And from everything that I've heard, he is sort of the dialed in master tactician when it comes to racing the marathon, which shows because he's only ever uh, lost one marathon. He's won every marathon he's entered except for one where he came second place. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Bekele. Uh, Tim, you've, you've met um, Bekele and interviewed him uh, in Berlin. What sort of a racer is Bekele and how? what sort of a marathoner has he become? Well, well it seems last year he was racing the marathon like he would um he was racing a track race he was uh kind of going back and forth with kip saying for a lot of the race uh dropping back 10 or 15 meters um and then he just made a surge i think around 40k or whatever and just ran a crazy time in the last uh 2k i think they could have set the world record last year had they not kind of gone back and forth and the, the kind of conservative um few kilometers that you'd see maybe in a 10,000 or a 5,000 meter race um, but meeting him, he's, uh, our interview wasn't, um, I guess the most pleasant cause I was talking to him about a rather touchy su- subject following the Olympics last year, uh, the Aromo protest. I think I talked to him a m- one month after the real Olympics and, uh, I was really the, one of the first people to ask him directly about it, um, which then kind of, uh, got shared a lot, I think in, in Ethiopia among, uh, and then even like the New York, people the New York Times and or, or the Washington Post also picked up on it and quoted quoted you as well or quoted him I guess in the interview you did. Uh, yeah, I think he didn't handle that entirely <laughs> well in retrospect. He, um, he seems like more of a kind of low key person. Kip Sang was also at that press conference last year and he seemed um, quite a bit more uh, vibrant and kind of humorous and um, cracking jokes with people. Whereas Pekeli, I think, is really uh, quite serious about these type of things. Um, he sees it as, I'm sure, as they all do, as a job, and his job is to win. Whereas maybe Kip saying uh, has a bit more fun with it and uh, it plays around a bit. And like you said, Kip Chogi is just always seems mellow and always seems calm and just like that simple kind of lifestyle. I just don't think Kip Chogi is uh, ever going to lose again. To be honest, knowing that uh, his mental fortitude at the breaking two thing. Oh, you're giving away your pick. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. But yeah. yeah, I I um I had a um a really insightful, interesting conversation with Wilson Kipsing a couple of years ago at an event where his uh his agent just sort of let me chat with him for like twenty minutes, like kinda unsupervised. I think very similar to your Bekele scenario. Sometimes I think these agents probably have to stop doing that. Maybe I shouldn't yeah. have said that. But <laughs> um and I found Kipsang to be really quite a charming alluring character uh apparently he runs a pretty big group and he's a self-coached athlete and he's sort of like the he's the ringleader i guess in his training group um and i I can totally see that because he's very uh, charismatic and he seems quiet and sort of reserved at first and once you get chatting he reveals he's he's got a pretty big personality like I think maybe we've talked about this in the podcast before, but uh, one of, it's one of the kind of neater things I've ever heard from a, 
from a, a distance runner, from an elite distance runner before that he's like, yeah, I like to listen to music. I like, I like American hip hop. I'm a really big notorious B.I.G. fan. And I was like, what? Okay. That's interesting. I wasn't expecting to hear that from you. Um, but he, um, yeah, he's a really pretty cool customer. And I think he sort of got his groove back in, uh, in, in Tokyo this, uh, this year. He looked really good. Maybe he bit off a little more than he could chew in the first half. I wonder what, how that would have played out if they paced it a little bit more conservatively, a little bit tighter to the uh, marathon world record because they did sort of start to come apart at the seams with about 10K to go. Uh, so I'm, I, I think that, you know, Kip saying, I think up until this year was sort of starting to become a little bit of a question mark. Um, and he is definitely, I, I, it's hard to pick. It's hard to pick who, which of these three guys is going to break the world record. So Tim, you think you kind of, you let the cat out of the bag at the very start. You think the world record's going to go. What do you think the time is going to be and who do you think is going to run it? Um, time I actually wasn't even really thinking about, but I think uh, low 202s. Low, I, think, ooh, okay. I think two people will break it. Um, the second person, I I don't know. I've, in my head, I, at the same time, I, w- I want to say if Bekele's there with like two K to go, he probably won't lose. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know. In my notes here, I have Kipchoge as he consistently wins. Kip saying consistently runs fast. And then Bekele is consistently inconsistent. He just, <laughs> he f- like shows these flashes of just like showing up and running 203.03 when everyone thought he was done. Uh, and then says he's going after the world record um, in, Dubai. in Dubai and drops out and takes like a cab back or waits for a cab to get back to the the finish line area because it's the worst course um and london he runs 205 which is good so, but, so, yeah. but you think he would was gonna win um yeah he's tough to so he's a tough uh he's a tough guy to, to make a prediction on but even within a race i mean think about his his greatest race which was berlin last year he was yo-yoing all over the place he went well back and then you, it, it is incredibly hard at that pace Yep. to fight back and win a marathon in the last 10 kilometers. And he did that and almost broke the world record in the process. So never count him out. I think he'll be somebody to definitely watch. Even if he falls back a hundred meters, I think he needs to be watched the entire race. Yep. So, I, I mean, my, I'm just staring here at the all time list. So after Dennis Cometo's world record, you've got 20302, which is uh Muay in, in, in Boston, but that doesn't count. And then you've got 20303, that's Bekele last year. And then 20305, that's Kipchoge. And and then you've got a whole slew of, you know, Kipsangs all over this as well. I mean, I'm going to go world record 20236. I don't know why. I just like that number. It sounds right. Uh, I, I can, I like you, will never bet against Elliot Kipchoge. It's going to go Kipchoge. Oh. <laughs> Kip saying Bekele that hurt to do any shoe malfunctions this time no shoe malfunctions <laughs> oh that's probably what most people remember from Kipchoge running with insoles flapping out of the back of his shoes like wings I think that was the end of the Nike zoom streak <laughs> but um, now he's I don't know is you gonna wear the oh yeah the breaking two the custom the uh the four percent absolutely for sure the custom one yeah for sure I wonder if he's gonna wear the the exact same one the vapor elite yeah 
exact same ones? Will Kipch- or with will Bekele wear it? Bekele will get the four percents. I think. I'm not sure if he has a cust- gets a custom shoe. He's sort of been a little bit snubbed in this, right? Like he's doing the sub two hour project that's um, that a uh, a Greek scientist is running. That kind of strange side project that we talked about in a past uh, a past podcast. So he is definitely using the the um, the information and the research of a scientific group, but it's a different group than the Nike Breaking Two, two group. So uh, I would be sort of like dueling sub two hour, actually all three of them, because uh, Kip Sang is also wearing Adidas's sub two shoe, right? So which is a very different shoe, a very lightweight shoe. And I, I hope Kipchoge doesn't wear the Garmin, uh, what was it, 920 XT triathlon watch that we uh, wrote about earlier this week. That will add maybe uh, a couple hundred grams to his his, uh, his wrist that he probably doesn't need. So I'd recommend he uh, he go by the gun time and not his watch time. For our listeners, <laughs> Tim Tim's email to us uh, last week was, why is Kipchoge wearing an iPad on his wrist? <laughs> It's, you know, it's a, it's a dated watch now. I mean, it's, it's not, as some of our readers have pointed out, it's not that old uh, and it does the trick. I think he just wears it in training. I don't think Kipchoge yeah. even wears a watch when he races. So, yeah. I mean, he's getting enough feedback as it stands. Uh, before we close this out, one thing to keep an eye on, actually one thing that was sort of interesting is that Tim dug up uh, for us in preparation for this uh, podcast was that uh, the list of pacers is out predominantly Kenyan pacers for these athletes, some pretty fast guys, a couple, a 204 and a 205 guy. So people who can definitely get the job done with, uh, with the pacing duties. I just hope that this race isn't boring for an hour and 45, 45 minutes. I hope that, I hope that there's some, that there's some breaks that, that, uh, I would actually, quite frankly, I would prefer to see an exciting, like a throwdown, a heavyweight bout between these three guys and no world record instead of just like this methodical, surgical precision race where the pacers take them up to 35 and then dis- and then drop off and then they kind of shoot out of the cannon and run side by side by side until 41 and a half K and sprint to the end. I mean, although that would produce a little bit of an interesting result, I guess, but... All right, Tim, let's talk about the women's race. Who's in the women's field and what does it look like this year? For the most part, I think it's going to come down to two um, two women, a Kenyan and a uh, Ethiopian, Gladys Chirona, who's run 219. Uh, sub 220 is really like the, what do you want to say, the sub 205 category for men, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, and maybe, Ibero, maybe 204. Yeah, and Abero Kabede, who's run it in 2010, 2012, 2016, uh, Chirona, who I just mentioned is the 2015 winner. These aren't, uh, I guess they aren't particularly household names, but, um, when you have a, anyone under 220 in a race, it's, uh, that's obviously a big name. Uh, and six women have broken 224, uh, as of the latest news that the Berlin marathon is released. Um, so yeah, it should, I think if they go under 220, that's always uh, a big result, but at the same time, that's still, uh, remarkably still four minutes off the world record. Whereas I think, um, yeah, it's just, it's mind blowing how the men always run faster and the women, uh, I guess the benchmark is just so incredibly high for, 
um, p- because of Paula Radcliffe's uh, world record. Um, Which is 2.15. Yep. And seems like, I think, the world record that, I don't know if it'll ever be broken. Although this year, uh, Mary Catani came really close in London. She's, she ran 2.17. And we should never forget uh, the great Turanish Dubaba also uh, running just under 2.18, 2.17.56, I believe, in London for second place. It's too bad that Berlin didn't bring together a better women's field, really. I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen Dibaba and Katani throw it down again. I think that would have been an extraordinary race, especially on a what is arguably a faster course in Berlin than London. I mean, London's got the cobblestones. Uh, the weather's not usually as great, and it's a little bit more twisty and turny uh, than Berlin is. So it probably... I mean, in theory, it, it, there's no reason why it shouldn't produce a faster women's time. And if I were to be uh, someone to, you know, bet on where the women's world record one day would fall, it would be Berlin. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe just the proximity of Berlin usually uh, being in September with these like big championship races and usually August, like Rio, London. Um, I think if there are like a few... Uh, big Americans in it, it might raise kind of the profile, at least in North America, knowing uh, Amy Craig won a medal in London 2017. That would be sweet if she was racing. Uh, Canadian Natasha Lebeau is racing. She's kind of the Canadian, I think, to look out for in the race she's run, I think, I want to say 235. Um, 35 or 36, yeah. Yeah, she's going to be, she's, I think, the the only Canadian on the uh, elite field, Um, though there's always... There might be someone that's uh, maybe a sub elite that could uh, that could get in there um, either for the men or women. So uh, yeah, if, I guess if you're making the trip over there, you kind of expect a fast time if you're if you're from Canada. So Tim, you'll be keeping a watchful eye on this this weekend. There'll be some live tweeting. There will be a link to and or embedded stream from. We just learned today. Uh, CBC Sports. CBC will be live streaming the Berlin Marathon for Canadian viewers. Uh, I'm not sure about availability outside of Canada for that stream. It might be uh, blocked by a proxy server. Uh, And which I mean, but it's great news for Canadians uh, that the CBC is supporting distance running. Uh, And they'll also be packaging uh, a highlight, I think probably a condensed version of it um, for their Sunday afternoon show that Scott Russell hosts uh, that sort of focuses uh, on the, the road to the 2020 Olympics. So they they have a big commitment to track and field and to road racing with that show. So that's great news, pretty exciting. It's really great to hear when, um, when the CBC picks up uh, distance running in this country. Yeah, big ups to big ups to CBC. Uh, in past years, you're probably looking at um, getting some sort of feed, like German Weird feed German or, stream. Yeah, fortunately now I'm sure we'll have uh, there'll be English commentary. I'm sure. Um, plus, yeah, but you're gonna have to be getting up early. It starts at quarter after three a.m. Uh, Eastern time. So Shiza. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Maybe I just ruined our G rating podcast there. <laughs> It's going to be the the conflict of whether you decide to stay up late or wake up early. So, yeah. I vote for wake up early and then you're going to be all fired up for your long run. I love watching a marathon and then going for a run afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we'll have it on at runningmagazine.ca for sure. 
Martin Desmond Rowe is the director of Breaking Two, a uh, new behind-the-scenes look at Nike's rather audacious and also controversial project to run a sub-two-hour marathon, which they did all came close to doing in May in Monza, Italy. Uh, Martin, welcome to the welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So, Martin, um, tell us a little bit about the genesis of this project, when you came on board, and the first scenes that you uh, you started to shoot. Sure. Uh, I worked with Nike a lot uh, across the Olympics. I did I do um, what's called athlete storytelling profiles for, for them, which is when you spend a, a day or a couple of days with an athlete and try and get to get you know insights into them and then you make uh, commercial work out of that so it's sort of you try to find authentic documentary style approach to uh to create short form internet content and i did that across the olympics um for a number of their um athletes and while i was doing that i'd heard through the various people that i work with that this breaking two project was bubbling mm-hmm. actually i remember the, i remember very clearly the first time i heard about it i was talking with mark mccambridge one of the uh, one of the execs who ended up being, well, he ended up being sort of the key exec for the film for Nike. Um, so he's like, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. They're going to try and do the two-hour marathon uh, barrier next year. And I was like, that sounds amazing. You're so excited. What are you talking about? The <laughs> two-hour marathon barrier. <laughs> and uh, like, I think that uh, that uh, when, you know, once you're inside this world and and the 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 lure of this barrier is so strong that uh, certainly at least in the initial stages of this project. Uh, we we faced constant surprise. People sort of we were like, they're going to run a marathon in two hours, and lots of lay people were sort of like, that sounds great. Is that fast? I've no idea. <laughs> um, I, I remember I remember being amongst that crowd the very first day it was brought up for me. But as soon as I understood, uh, you know, as soon as I mean, it, ta- it only takes a cursory glance at the sort of information to understand the scale of of uh, difficulty and achievement that go into the trying to run a two hour marathon. So uh, when you assemble i guess it's probably a pretty pretty small crew because you're traveling all around the world uh and you get the camera and you're going out to shoot your first scenes where did you start very first things that were filmed were actually was actually uh i said the the, the way to pitch the way to tell us is that initially we weren't filming documentary initially we were filming content to advertise the fact that this event was going to happen and then also you know it was going to, they knew it was going to be two hours of three guys running in a circle um so it's like we got to we've got to find content to make that entertaining so that not only do people want to watch but people understand what they're watching it and why they're watching it who these guys are so the very first thing we filmed was actually uh, a wind tunnel test in the university of new hampshire with the scientists and with oh them. neat uh, yeah it was really fun they, they went into the one of those they didn't the scene didn't make it in in the movie most of the science stuff didn't make it in the movie honestly because they wanted to focus on the runners but and we filmed an enormous amount of science stuff and the very first thing we filmed was testing uh drag resistance like there were you know scientists were sort of everything from just slapping up a massive great big uh wall in front of the runners and seeing what that would you know picturing them driving running behind a lorry basically running behind like a semi-truck mm-hmm. uh down to uh running behind the triangle formation that they ultimately so did you, um, were you on board, from my understanding, there was quite a few athletes uh, short, long-listed, and then there was like something like 16 athletes short-listed before they boiled it down to the, the three finalists. Were you on board sort of from the very beginning uh, when they were still trying to figure out who was going to take a crack at sub-two hours? We never filmed, 
we we over like I sort of gave notes and advice on filming some of those test days when they were testing. Actually, then some of that footage did make it in. That wasn't footage we shot. It was shot by local teams. Uh, we knew it was happening. We'd been we knew we were involved in the project, but we hadn't gotten the official green light. So we gave you know we gave uh, sort of advice and 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 sort of came up with the overall visual approach and storytelling approach to those scenes. But I wasn't on the project then. But I've seen all the footage from that time. We had, we had actually footage of Lalisa's test and Elliot's test both make it into the film itself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm going to pick your brain later about what was sort of left on the cutting room floor because I can imagine there's probably a lot of footage and a lot of interesting insights that you you know, were forced to, uh, to trim in order to get uh, this film in it about the... 55 minute cut that will be aired uh september 20th which is today uh wednesday that we're recording on wednesday this podcast will be out on friday uh and then we'll be able to be seen online afterwards but uh, before we get into that um i just sort of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that focus on character uh on these three men their personality types uh and how that became sort of the the major the major narrative thrust of the film tell me a little bit about these these three guys and how much time you spent with them we shot a total of if there's a, some debate on things i think we shot we shot over 50 days um, possibly 55 days i think wow. is, is the final, which is a lot for a documentary yeah uh, especially one where we were filming primarily verite which means we're not asking them to do anything we're just hanging out with them for 10 hours and just filming them as they do what they do um it's not a very um it's not a very good work reward ratio approach, but what no. it is is a very good authenticity approach because we 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 just we are with these guys, you know, we're we're at the houses, we're at their training sessions. We're not none of this is staged, none of this is is for the camera. Um, is that's the goal? Uh, and the, my I have I have a long have a long standing interest in East Africa. I spent uh, a year there as a teenager and have tried to go back whenever I can for various jobs and have been relatively successful at that. And just as a, as a cinematic interest for me generally, I'm very interested in using the power of cinema to, to tell stories of people that don't necessarily get their stories told that much. And uh, when I was researching this, when I was sort of starting to, you know, I, was watching, I watched a lot of marathons, uh, just, you know, in the 70s and 80s and the sort of craze was on us at the end after the, after the guys win the race, there's these big long chats and it's cheering and, and it's this sort of very engaged audience with the, with the winners. But then as the as the winners became increasingly more uh, East African, sort of universally East African, no matter what the, the event, you end up with quite a lot of these guys who are not comfortable in the in the media spotlight, who probably don't speak English as a first language, and are sometimes being interviewed by people who don't speak English as a first language. And the the entire storytelling around these, these long-distance runners was reduced to them. They would kind of come on, they'd thank God, uh, usually, yep. for, for, for their victory, and then they'd be sort of shuffled off. And and I think that, you know, as human beings, we need to connect with the story of the athletes to truly appreciate the phenomenal things that they are doing. And so as I was sort of doing my research and looking into this, I was like, we have to, we have to, whatever happens in that, in the race, obviously we planned all this before the race, like whatever happens in that race, win, lose, draw, disaster, if I can get people to understand these guys on their own terms, if I can give a little insight into their lives under their own, you know, under their own terms, I think that will massively increase your hopes and fears for however they do. Um, that was sort of my thinking uh, behind it. And we ended up being, we got incredible access. I mean, they were, 
extremely generous with their time. Uh, Elliot is uh, Elliot Kipchoge from Kenya is obviously one of the sort of greatest distance runners, um, certainly currently running and possibly of all time. And he gave us. I mean, we we spent slightly over yeah slightly over two weeks covering him, uh, just for everything from his home life with his family to the training uh, regime that he has in Kaptegat where he trains. Uh, Lalisa about the same, but all that all three athletes it was probably about two weeks in total that we filmed um, in their in their home life settings. Tell uh, us, Lalisa lives in. Sorry, go on. No, no, sorry, go on. Keep going. Yeah, Lalisa lives in Addis in Addis Ababa, which is the the. Elliot lives in Elliot lives a very monastic existence. He lives in uh, he lives in Eldoret, which is already a quiet mountain town. But he trains in Kaptegat, which is eight thousand feet above, uh, you know, out to eight thousand feet, and even quieter, in the middle of nowhere. It's very much a monastic, uh, running only approach to life. Elise is a young guy, you know, he's a young man who got successful at twenty two. Uh, he lives in Addis Ababa, which is the capital of Ethiopia, which is incredibly vibrant, incredibly busy. Uh, booming city and he's a sort of successful young man about town you know and so he uh he lives in addis which is a, i'm not sure it's a relatively high city but he he drives up the hill every morning to train uh again at about eight thousand feet zers and i lives and trains most of the year in eritrea which is a fascinating country if people haven't heard of it it's uh it's a very new country only about 25 years old just got its independence from ethiopia and they're very much figuring out what it means to be a country you know they they, they they're just just figuring it all out. Uh, Zeus and I won the very first Olympic medal for Eritrea. It's why he's such an impossibly big hero. But they also have a lot of troubles there, and they have the unfortunate nickname of being the uh, North Korea of Africa because they have a very uh, difficult regime. So he had he had the most unique training thing because they only they only got a running federation like 15 or 20 years ago. Um, they they it's all very nascent there, you know. And and, and Zeus and I is very much the figurehead of it. So each one of them is like a sort of superstar in their own world. But I would sort of say that Elliot is this sort of like grandmaster sort of, you know, legend. Lalisa is this young sort of man about town. And Zeus and I is the symbol of it. He's on the front page of textbooks for kids. He's the symbol <laughs> of, of Eritrean greatness. I'm curious about Elliot Kipchoge. His profile obviously has um, been, you know, risen quite a bit since the uh, the breaking two project and of course beforehand but you know the breaking two project and the olympic gold medal in the marathon um he certainly is one of the greatest if not the greatest marathon runner of all time and he's still in his prime uh, is he actually that cool a customer because he just seems like so even all the time is okay this is uh, the I've been very, I've been very fortunate. I've been very lucky in my career to. I've spent the last three years filming, filming elite athletes. I've worked with Kobe. I've worked with Serena. I've worked with all these sort of impossibly successful high-end people, and I've never been more impressed with anybody than I have with Elliot. He wow. is. It's honest to God. He is that calm and centered. So the most exciting thing in, in for me, the whole experience was. Uh, global sports uh, training camp, the training yeah. camp that Elliot lives and trains at up in Captagat. And the, the building they live in, I think, has 22 rooms. But what I do know for sure is that every room you share two to a room, and it's co-ed. So there's, there's women runners and there's men runners up there. But you, you, everyone has a dorm mate, and so Elliot is, you know, gold medalist, tier one Nike athlete. I mean, he's got to be worth, you know, millions and millions of dollars, and he's sharing with a 19-year-old kid who hasn't started his racing career yet. And these rooms are like 
six foot by six foot. They're just big, big enough for two single beds and a little table between it. And they're not allowed to uh, hire any help. You know, they have to clean their own showers. They have to go and fetch water from wells. Um, they shower using water they pull out from a non-drinking well they have on the property. Uh, they live this incredibly humble life. Everyone at 5:45 the bell goes off, and at 6 a.m. everybody runs every mo- every morning. They, and there's no no families allowed Monday through Friday. And on the weekends they go back and they they hang out with their with their family. And he's been doing this every week during training for 15, 16 years. And the sense of purpose, the sense of grounded, I know why I'm here. This is I know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Oh, in addition to run, so they run at 6 a.m. every morning, and they have massages, chat, listen to sort of uh, super aggressive um, Kalenjin pop songs. <laughs> and then they have a shakedown run at 4 p.m. every day as well. And uh, and then, you know, by the time it's dark, it's time to go to bed. And I've never been in the presence of that level of ritual and regime that was as intoxicating as that. I was like, my God, I want to be a young Kalenjin uh, <laughs> um, sort of running prior. You know, to be sort of 15 and, and Kalenjin and know that you... You might make it in there. It must be. It must be so intoxicating because it it, it answers all the questions about what you're supposed to do with life. You're supposed to pursue yeah. excellence in this field, and they are also extremely. It's not um, star orientated in the way that we would assume it would go. Not and this is not that not that Elliot's not the big man on campus. He is, um, but there are other gold medalists there. There was the uh, the Ugandan marathon gold medalist from. Uh, the, the Olympics before it was a his name right Stephen Kiprotich um, Stephen Kiprotich from uh, 2012 from, from Uganda well done yeah. amazing thank yeah. you yes but, you know it, there are plenty of big men there uh, in addition to all these young guys and um, uh, and they, you know and they have uh, Jeffrey Komoro who's sort of a rising star but it's very it's very much a team they treat running as a team sport they treat their life as a team they treat their career and their profession as a team you know, discipline. And actually my favorite thing Elliot says in the whole movie, Elliot's, Elliot's a bit of a quote machine. Sort of, we, we, we joke he's a, he's, a, he's a cross between Yoda and, and Bruce Lee. He speaks in, the, in this sort of very adorable, uh, you know, thick uh, Kenyan English accent uh, and with his prepositions where we wouldn't put them in sentences. And, and he speaks in uh, aphorisms. But one of my favorite ones is that, you know, uh, and he always begins his sentences with, they say before... <laughs> coming up with an aphorism that he's making up on the spot, which, which is uh, one of my favorite verbal tics. But um, uh, he says that uh, 100% of me is nothing compared to 1% of the team. Yeah, that's a... Me to, Sorry, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin no, your quote he, there. No, no, no. There was like, for me, that was... Yeah, he was when he... Like, he mean... Like, for me, as somebody who... From coming at running from the outside and assuming it is this solitary, lonely discipline, you know, you, you want to do that, that. It's you against yourself to a certain degree running. But to realize that these guys who are the best in the world do not see themselves. They see themselves firstly as teammates and then secondly as individual competitors, knowing that one person gets to be first. That is how it works. But that you're going to maximize your chance of being first if you're part of an amazing team. You must have had a lot of footage from the the global sports camp that you had to cut. There were some really great scenes that you were able to keep in. Tell us a little bit about other other scenes and locations that just weren't able to make it into the the one hour cut. That if you maybe had the opportunity to do like a two hour version of this, you would definitely have have wanted to see in this film. 
I mean, I think people would, I think, I mean, I would have loved to have gone into into detail in terms of their training regimes and particularly how the scientists engaged with each athlete uh, on their training regimes. We, we were unfortunately only, only able to approach that really from the 10,000 foot point of view. Yeah. Uh, in the film, we make, we make the point that, you know, one of the, because it was one of the most sort of standout shocking points is that Zers and I, Tedesse, who is the half world marathon record holder, and not only that, he has the second fastest time as well. He had never drunk a drop of water in the marathons he'd run, and when the scientists found that out, they couldn't—they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that somebody who was this experienced a runner um, didn't understand the, you know, the the the, the not—that is not a—that's not a hidden secret. You know, that's a sort of relatively no. uh, commonly accepted fact. And so that one, obviously, we kept that one in because it was such a—we we thought it would be interesting to people that someone at Zersenai's level might not know that. Um, but the the specifics of the uh, the science and you know how regimented and how uh, scientifically each one of these guys does or did did or didn't approach their training and on top of that how the scientists interacted them with them was one of the most fascinating parts of the process for me um, but unfortunately it was it's very um, not National Geographic really wanted me to get as much science in as possible but they obviously want that science to be uh, accessible and comprehensible and the honest truth is that sports science is um, in the moment I think people want <laughs> I think people want the sports science thing to be all right come in, come in here tell me scientifically how to do this perfectly and I'll just do it like x y and z mm -hmm. but that's not how it works it's very much based on each person's physiology you know what, what data they can collect from the people it's very much a moving target it's, it's very intelligent very uh, well, you know, versed and, and uh, people looking to try and get great data to make very small suggestions <laughs> is honestly, uh, is honestly, people are always looking for sort of a, a smoking gun. It's like, oh, you know, well, we give it, you know, if I, if I do this, then it'll, everything will change. And, but, but those small corrections and those small things. So, so for example, um, I know that uh, the data set that the scientists collected from this uh, project uh, are they going to do they're going to do something with them I think they're going to release them because it's a data set the likes of which you know sports science probably has never seen I mean the for every because they were you know because this was a job because these the, the runners were focused only on this race and everybody knew that as part of that they were running they were wearing uh, uh, you know the watches and they would upload every piece of data and uh, and then there were lactate tests and there were uh, the two max tests constantly done throughout the process. Um, here's a couple of interest uh, tidbits that uh, may interest sort of hardcore runners. Elliot Kipchoge had never been on a treadmill yeah. before his first, his first tests on this, which I thought was fascinating. That's just crazy. Um, and Elisa, it's crazy, right? Yeah. And Elisa, Elisa got up to sustaining 22, yeah, 22 kilometers an hour. He got up to slightly over, yeah, he got up to 22.5 kilometers an hour on a treadmill and didn't hit his critical velocity wow. during the testing phase is why they were crazy excited about him he was never able to get anywhere close to that after that testing phase was that was over um but there was these were these are these are sort of snippets of things that if we had the time to go into these things in more depth i would have loved to put in yeah yeah i mean that's that's fascinating stuff for me and i think for a lot of our listeners like particularly for like kind of hardcore uh fans of elite running that's and just of the science of running in general. Uh, that's, that's some fascinating stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the, the race itself. It, um, it was probably the most bizarre 
and (laughs) like alluring kind of hypnotic experience that I've ever had standing um, by a course watching elite runners run. Um, What was your experience of that day from a directorial standpoint? Um, Well, from a directorial standpoint, uh, any race that begins that that we have to be there a few hours before everyone else has to be there. (laughs) Yeah, and we were also we actually managed to get um, runners to agree to let us uh, cover them just from as soon as they woke up. So um, I don't think I went to bed that night. <laughs> I think uh, we were just up the whole the whole night through. Um, Elliot had agreed to let us film him that morning, but then managed to avo- uh, elude us <laughs> until he got to the stadium, <laughs> um, which, uh, which I can't fault him for because uh, you know when you're under that much pressure, the thing you want is. Uh, a little camera team following you around, however much, however, however polite and charming they're trying to be. Um, but the other two guys, we, we managed to, we followed them in. Uh, you know, I was, it was the end of a, you know, slightly more than a year long process for me. And, and honestly, like the, 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 the emotions going into the race of the day, everyone was very nervous for Lily. So there was, there was, there was concern that it would go how it went for him. Ultimately, right. I think people, people sort of, you know, uh, there was a disparity, like I say, between his initial testing and, and pretty much how he performed from the beginning of the... He's obviously a world-class runner, and, you know, as, as a shout-out to him, I think this is his worst marathon time by miles because he tried to go at the pace that they asked him to go. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something I want, you know, I think Lelisa deserves some recognition for. He can certainly run a much better marathon than that under those conditions if he's uh, if it's paced for him as, it being pa- as opposed to being paced for this time. Um, but there was concern for him going into it. But for the other two guys, there was a lot of optimism. I mean, there was an immense amount of optimism for Elliot. I mean, the, uh, I, I had certainly drunk the Kool-Aid. I mean, he, his, his self-belief, his absolute ironclad belief that he was going to do this in the face of, um, you know, all, all statistical and, and, you know, mathematical doubt was extremely um, uh, alluring. And and it, and 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 it made me. It certainly made a believer out of me. Um, I think it, we, they uh, the the key scientist had said when he the very first day of testing, the very first day of the project, he said thirty to forty percent. I think he might he let himself creep up to forty five percent by the day of the race. Um, hmm. He's not he's not prone to uh, over you know over 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 overly emotional. But there was a lot of hope, a lot of a lot of belief that um, that this thing was going to uh, if not, if we weren't going to do it, we, 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 there was a lot of hope that it was going to go down at least as well as it did, and maybe even better. And given that the this project was extremely um, risky in its very nature, it could have been a complete disaster. Um, knowing that on the day that we had three healthy athletes, two of whom were in extremely good shape, let put everybody in a very good frame of mind. And in terms of strategies for uh, for shooting, what you said before is essentially a group of three guys running in a circle for two hours. <laughs> um, Ideally, slightly under two hours. Sli- yeah. <laughs> one hour and fifteen. Hours. Did you? Uh, you sh- there was footage of the test event, the test event, which was a one-hour half marathon test event in advance on, on the track. Uh, did you have a, a like a really clear? kind of visual and narrative idea going into shooting that because I thought it was really elegantly shot and I thought it captured aspects of that race that only you could have seen uh, like the the back end of the track in the last lap right. for Kipchoge which I thought was a really um, 
just totally captivating and rather beautifully uh, constructed scene. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, no, we, we, one of the joys of working with a resource like Nike um, is that the, the aim, you know, they're always aiming, they're, if you've captured like, hey, we're aiming for excellence, they're, they're very, very receptive to whatever, you know, you're doing. And I've actually had a lot of experience filming runners as part of the Olympic campaign. Previous year, I'd filmed Gonzebe de Baba and um, uh, Mo Farah and Alison Felix. But the, the long run, the, the, I'd filmed a couple of long distance runners and I'd learned a lot doing that because very difficult when you're trying to film people who are constantly running away from you and it's not sprinting and it's 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 a very consistent very even experience uh, and finding ways to access that become very important i mean a few real uh sort of things that were helping us on this project number one uh that they were running in a circle so we were able to cover it with a lot of cameras and static places that we knew would be constantly uh picking them up in good areas but also because it was a controlled environment on a race course as it was, and because uh, the decision was made to use only electric vehicles, which were very quiet, we were suddenly, we had two camera follow cars where we were able to hear them breathing and spitting um, and, you know, and, the, and, and the footfalls. And that, that was, when we realized that when we were doing our test days, I was like, oh, this could actually be quite special. This is, yeah. uh, this is, this is I, I think there's something profoundly different when you can hear uh, an athlete doing their thing. I think you know we don't really get that in street street races because of the the noise of the vehicles, the noise of the crowds, just general noise of the cities. And I've, I definitely my favourite thing that we filmed was an Elliot training run in Kenya, and it was one that we weren't sure we were going to do because we'd filmed so much running, and the, and uh, and it was one where he starts just before dark, uh, running in front of his car, and then he runs down these roads as the sun rises, and we've got we he, he, it's the only time he ever lets mic him, and. Uh, and we got the audio from that. Like, oh, oh my! You know, if we it's just realizing the difference that that you get as a as a viewer when you can hear the effort, because he always smiles. He look, it looks so effortless. And I think being able to hear the breath, being able to hear the pain, even if you can't see it, I think helps put you in there a little bit. Oh, I totally agree. I I, I think for nothing else, watch this documentary to see that that sequence because I think it really it 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 bet, it sort of better frames the the details of, of, you know, what, what he was going through in that, in that moment, which is, you know, kind of extraordinary. Um, so finally, what do you, th Martin, what do you think, what do you think the future is of, of, of this two hour, uh, barrier? Do you think that Nike will, will go back and try to do this again? Or do you feel like this was sort of a, a special moment in, in the history of the sport? I, I can't speak for Nike. I'm not a, I'm not a, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm a. I'm a tourist in their in their you know in their vast empire. Not a not a not a key player. So, but I. I, uh, um, I would say that there is a an immense appetite internally there. There's, you know, for me, I I, I know. In, in, I know you mentioned the con control, uh, controversial aspects of it uh, at the beginning of the podcast, and I'll, I'll answer by talking to that, which is to say that um, I knew. I'm a, I'm a complete layman to the, the running world, and I'd never heard of Let's Run before, and, and uh, didn't <laughs> oh, know where it was. And yeah, so it's been an interesting ride. And and, and you know the 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 hunk of the, I think there's something about the purity of running that inspires this. There is something so pure about it in its essence, and anybody can do it, and it doesn't require anything. Uh, that in, inspires a purist sort of approach to it, which I really I find very you know very agreeable. But the 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 honest truth for me is that 
I, I, I met this through individuals at Nike, not not a not Nike the you know the big the big empire, like a bunch of individuals who really love running. A lot, most of the sort of you know higher ups that I interacted with were runners themselves when they were younger, and they saw in this project and in and, and honestly in Elliot in particular a chance at being a chance at leveraging all of their you know access and ability behind this attempt in a way that got them sort of school child giddy, like they realised that this could be something that, that really mattered to them. And it really did. And it was very risky for them because, you know, if Elliot pulls a hamstring four weeks before the race or, um, I mean, there's just so many reasons in which this could have been a very, very expensive, very poorly received thing. And so it, it, I know that it was very high risk for them internally. So I, I doubt there's a massive appetite to do it again right away. Because <laughs> no. um, if they try it again next year and it, and it blows up, then it would in a, in a way probably damage um what they've what they've been you know i think they're very happy at the fact that they were able to walk into something that there was a lot of suspicion around and you know largely because of elliot um they were able to uh to, to bypass that and create an experience that a lot of people have seen a lot of value in. um and I, again i talk about this as an as you know at least coming at it from a place of an outsider to, to all of it um I think that the two-hour barrier, like I say, when I started this project, I'd never heard of the two-hour barrier, and I think that that was probably relatively fair of a lot of lay people outside of running. Uh, and I think that the this will have helped put it on the map for a lot of, a lot more people. And you know, the, the barrier that this was always compared with internally and in all the marketing and everything we've done was, was Bannister's four-minute mile. And I think, as with most of these barriers, in addition to it being just a great number, you know, four minutes in a, uh, you know, the nice clean four minutes or the nice clean two hours. It was the fact that lots and lots of people had tried and gotten agonizingly close but not been able to do it that made that four-minute barrier so valuable. And I think that what this project did is it proved without a shadow of a doubt that it is physiologically possible for a human being to run 26.2 miles in under, in, in under two hours. Uh, but even the best runner today, with all of the resources of Nike behind him, wasn't able to do it. And I think that's catnip for... For the future, you know, what I mean, I feel like I, I mean, I'd like to. Somebody was somebody was suggesting the day after the thing I heard, someone was like, "We should have done it in the desert. It was too hot. We should have done it in the desert." And I was like, "Um, I'd like to film sunrise in the desert, please." That's <laughs> like, <if> you, <laughs> that sounds really good. If you're doing that one, I'll, I'll sign me up. Um, so I have no insider information on if it's going to ever happen again, but I do know that uh, this made a lot of people very, very happy for a lot of very genuine reasons inside that organization. Martin Desmond Rowe is the director of Breaking 2, which will be airing on National Geographic Channel uh, tonight, September 20th, and then will be available online, if I'm not mistaken, afterwards, Martin? The national, yeah, no paywall on the National Geographic website from tomorrow, from the 21st onward. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us, Martin. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And now, Tim, it is time for our recommendations. What do you have for us this week? I'm going to recommend the most important uh, piece of any running um, outfit is the shoes. So I'm going to recommend uh, the Hoka 1-1 or Hoka One One Kavu. Um, it's a new, less, I don't know, it just like it looks, I guess, more dynamic and less cushiony than most uh hoka one ones from the past like the clifton and the clayton it looks less like a clown shoe that's what you wanted to say <laughs> uh 
and we go, we have it early. It's coming out, I've heard, February 2018. So we've had kind of an advanced look. Um, and I've done one, one or two runs in it so far. Uh, it has a 27 millimeter heel, which is rather high, pretty insane. Um, but I just, I compare it to the Saucony Convara 8, just a beefed up version. Uh, it's the neutral cushion kind of uh, basic trainer. And uh, I'm really looking forward to putting uh, some mileage into it um, as I've never really run a lot of my training runs in Hoka's. I've, I've raced uh, occasionally in the Tracers, um, which even as racers are probably like a lightweight trainer for most people. Um, but yeah, I'm trying out the Cavus, uh, C-A-V-U, um, which are set to be released in early 2018. So we'll, uh, we'll let you know how that goes. I noticed them on your feet in the last couple of days, and I did remark that they looked really slick. They look like kind of lower profile and, uh, they just have a really clean look to them. And I, I like Hoka's. I, Hoka's are uh, a deceptive shoe to run in because they don't feel like the way they look. They look like a lot of shoe. They don't feel that way under your foot at all. I think it's only eight ounces. So like, yeah. that's light. They're quite light. I mean, I think they, they have to sacrifice a little bit of the durability factor in order to make them that light. The, I think the midsole, the EVA does break down rather quickly. They don't use a whole lot of outsole material. There's not a whole lot of rubber underneath them usually. But... They're incredibly light and they're really easy on the legs. And this is the first, it's, it's the Cavu one or it doesn't even, it's obviously not named the Cavu one. It's just the Cavu. Um, so yeah, it's the first in its line of uh, additions. So I'm looking forward to seeing what, uh, what kind of changes they make going forward. My recommendation this week is a 2015, late 2015 book by the journalist, Ed Caesar, the British journalist who writes for, Wired, The New Yorker. Uh, he's uh, a very talented writer, uh, a great storyteller, and a really good person. Uh, he, I got to meet him in, in Monza and uh, during the Breaking 2 coverage, which he was following for, for several months. He had a, a really great inside, exclusive look at the project right from the, the beginnings of it um, in partnership with Nike. Anyway, he wrote a book uh, in t- late 2015 about... Uh, Jeffrey Mutai called Two Hours the Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon, where he spent a lot of time with Mutai in Kenya and followed his his training and his career. And was he really sort of pro- prognosticated this coming attack on on the two hour barrier uh, by look taking a harder look at at the training in Kenya and at Mutai's training in particular. And Mutai was a really interesting figure as well. I think a really great protagonist for this book. And I quite enjoyed it. I wrote a review about it shortly after it came out. We'll have to repost it online. I actually remember being a little bit critical of uh, in not delving and hitting a little bit harder on uh, the PED issues in East Africa. Uh, however, I, I still highly, highly recommend this book. It's it's incredibly well written. And I think, you know, there there needs to be uh, more light shone on the these incredible athletes uh, from East Africa that I just feel like don't really get their due um, or their or they don't get the focus uh, the spotlight shone on them uh, because they're not you know big team sports they're not North American they're not white and uh, I think that that's a damn shame and like for example this weekend in Berlin I think all three of these 
guys that are running potentially for the world record are fascinating characters. They should be on ESPN. They should have magazine features written on them. And I think Ed Caesar did a great job writing about Jeffrey Mutai. So pick up two hours, the quest to run the impossible marathon. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and Apple podcast. And we're also now available on Stitcher and Google play. Uh, make sure to follow our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the shakeout podcast and on Twitter at shakeout podcast and Instagram at shakeout podcast. Podcast.